Matthew Wyford, who has another riveting message that tells us of God's strength, God's love, and Jesus' love for us. Amen. And now, Matthew Whiteford, amen? Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you guys today. Hope you all had a wonderful week. All right, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, the gospel of Jesus' cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, dear Lord. Uh, we pray that we just cling to your cross and we uh, are crucified with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hmm. The gospel truly is foolishness to those who are perishing. Uh, in the reading today, uh, Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will build it in three days. Uh, that probably sounded like foolishness. Uh, you know, these people had precisely what they demanded, but they stumbled over the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Corinthians were the same way, uh, and I'm going to read 1 Corinthians uh, verses 18 through 31, and we will see how they are very similar to the people in the temple that day who had their tables flipped. Verse 18, the word of the cross is foolish. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perish. Oh, excuse me. The word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is not the first time in the Bible that uh, the word of God, that God Himself, is trying to compare and contrast wisdom or foolishness, or even foolishness and power. Uh, this is a very common thing. God often in the Proverbs compares the strong and the weak, the wise and the simple, things like that. Uh, now, the Greek's wisdom, it's the worldly wisdom. And worldly wisdom, that me first, how to get ahead sort of wisdom, that craftiness, it will lead people to hell. The Greeks in the fallen world perish. They're dying out there right now because they believe that the cross is foolishness. Uh, and it's sad because Christ, who is the true wisdom of God, is the only thing that can save us from ourselves and this fallen world. The cross, Jesus' shed blood alone, is what has the power to save us. For it is written, verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Uh, this is Isaiah 20, excuse me, this is Isaiah 29, verse 14, and God is foretelling the future of just the failure and defeat of human wisdom throughout the ages. Time and time again, the best prognosticators and handicappers, the best NCAA term, tournament bracket makers always find wisdom getting turned on its head as the bracket is busted 
or the battle didn't go the way they were sure it was going to go. Now, the wise of this world will not be, under, be able to understand God or find him based upon their own intellect and learning. They're literally too smart to believe in Jesus, too learned, too educated to believe in Jesus. Too, they know better than to believe in Jesus. Well, this wisdom of the wise and its followers will be condemned on the last day. Those who will be saved are those who believe in the foolishness of the word of the cross. Verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? That's the educated person. Where is the debater of this age? That's like the talking head on your favorite news channel. Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of this world? For since, the wisdom of God, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Yeah, uh, Jesus didn't come the way people expected him according to the best wisdom of the age. Uh, no, those people had, that were expecting Jesus, expecting the Messiah, had been poring over the scriptures, thinking it gave them eternal life for centuries, and you'd have, think, you'd have thought they would have recognized Jesus when he came. Uh, but they didn't. Uh, and the reason for that is they were still part of this fallen world, just like we are. Uh, this present world, this present age of the world is characterized by sin. Uh, Paul makes this very clear in Galatians and other places. But the good news is a new age or a new eon has come through Christ. Uh, now, in the 70s, uh, the hippies declared that the age of Christ was over and the age of Aquarius was dawning. Uh, I wasn't there for that declaration, but I haven't seen it happen yet. Uh, but no, we are not in the age of Aquarius. We are, in the, we are still in the new age in Christ that began at his resurrection. Nonetheless, even though Christ is there on the cross for all of us to see, people still go out of their way to turn their head down from the cross and look and search for God on their own anywhere and everywhere they can, and they can't find him. And the reason for that is because the cross seems foolish to them. But the true gospel, the, the true word we preach is Christ crucified. Verse 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Foolishness here is kind of that idea of nonsense. You know, when someone says, it's, when some, to our sinful hearts, when the cross is foolishness, because people look at it and go, that's just not how the world works. You ever heard, like, someone say something and explain something, like their response to a political event, and you were just, I'm a, I'm a middle school teacher, so, like, I, get, I hear this a lot, and I, sometimes I want to look at my students, and I want to go, oh, really? Like, uh, a junior I know, uh, he was going to be a professional athlete, uh, but now that he's, a, he's believed this his whole life, I've known him for years, but, uh, you know, the scholarships aren't coming now, and he's, you know, not 6'8", uh, so maybe he's not going to be a point guard in the NBA, and he's starting to realize that, so he's tried to get some more reasonable, realistic expectations, and now he's going to be either a Twitch professional video gamer playing Fortnite, or a YouTube celebrity streamer with a million followers. And I was just like, buddy, 
it's just not how the world works, you know? Like, but in his mind, this is perfectly rational. And it's easy to laugh at, you know, a young man, but we often do the same way with how we think God works and the things of God works and the gospel works. I mean, these were grown, educated men, these Jews. And these Greeks, they were educated according to the Torah and Deuteronomy, or they were educated according to Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle. And they all just could not accept the power of God on the cross. Mm. All right. I mean, the Jews demanded signs, and Jesus gave them signs. He healed the sick and opened the eyes of the blind. He raised the dead. But they wanted a different kind of sign. They, you know, they wanted something more real, something more glorious. Uh, they wanted saviors from the evil out there, not the evil in here. They wanted, they wanted the protection from the evil things other people did. They didn't want protection from the evil they did to other people which is kind of how I, I'm not going to blame, I can't blame them, that's how I am, uh, you know, uh, but uh, it's true. I, my wife can stub my toe, and I'm like righteously indignant and enraged, you know, and totally blind to like me driving the lawnmower over her feet while I'm on my, iPod, on my phone not looking, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just how we act, uh, you know, and the Greeks, they wanted salvation to be something they had to figure out for themselves. They wanted it to be some secret hidden thing that only the best and brightest and smartest could figure out based on their genius. They wanted philosophy. They wanted human intellect and human reason to usurp the power and sufficiency of God's word. Uh, Thomas Jefferson is a good example of a Greek. He's the closest example we can understand. You know, he loved the moral ethical system of the gospels and of Jesus Christ because they made sense to, to him. But, you know, he would just throw away anything in the Bible that just wasn't how the world worked, like the miracles. Uh, but what do we Christians do? Uh, true Christians, we preach Christ crucified uh, because we recognize that our primary problem is Christians and not because of our own intellect or power or godliness or wisdom, but the Holy Spirit has revealed to us in our heart the painful truth that we need to be saved from the evil in ourselves far more than any evil out there from somebody else. Uh, you know, even if we were up on the mountaintop uh, in a yoga pose praying for 2,000 years and there wasn't any other evil out there, anyone bothering us, we'd still need to be saved uh, because we are lost and condemned. We are beggars. And that's not something we say in shame or groveling. It's just an acceptance of the problem. There's things, I, I, I have to outsource this problem I have inside myself. Now, the beautiful thing is when this happens, this ex acceptation of our, this humble just acknowledgement of the reality around us, our own powerlessness in the face of our own internal evil, that's actually, it feels like death but it's actually the liberating path to eternal life. Verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. 
That is the Christ crucified we, we preach. This is going on to verse 24. If you're called in Christ, whether you're Jewish or Christian or Chinese, no matter what way, and he's talking about, when he says Jews and Greeks, he's talking about the worldview, how they think the world really works. No matter how you were raised to think the world really works, whether American or African or Asian or Middle Eastern, it's Christ on the cross is the power of God when the Holy Spirit has opened up your eyes to this truth. Verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, when the Holy Spirit comes inside our hearts uh, with the power to forgive and redeem and bring to new life, that new life, that saving, uh, that tra- that's transformative in a way that no other power can do. Uh, it changes us from the inside out. I mean, who wants to just be really disciplined and always follow the rules from just sheer willpower? I mean, if that's all we have, we're no different than anybody else. You know, we, we might as well go do CrossFit, you know, so we can look good. You know, no, this is about Christ changing us from the inside out, not the outside in. And only the gospel of Christ crucified has the power to do that. Uh, because only that can give us the courage and the, and the hope and the faith to take up our cross and follow Christ. Uh, wisdom, don't think wisdom is just something that we read in the Bible or something that old people have. Wisdom here is, when he says it, he means our intuitive understanding of, of how the world really works. And when you say you believe Christ on the cross and you preach Christ on the cross crucified, you're actually denying the conventional wisdom of how the world really works. You're actually going counter to every culture. You're actually turning the world on its head because you're saying it's not the fictions that we believe. It's not how things really are. That we, or it's, things aren't really how, they, how we think they are. Because all of us use shortcuts to make sense of the world. You know, when we see someone running down the street, you know, we go, I wonder why they're running. You know, when we see, when we see a flood, you know, hit a nation or hit an area, we go, I wonder why there was a flood. We need our belief systems to make sense of the world. And usually those belief systems are very much trying to say that, oh, well, the flood hit that nation because it was evil. You know, or the earthquake hit that city because it was evil, because that makes us feel safe. That's the conventional good religious Christian wisdom. And it makes God sound very powerful and glorious. I get that. But that's not how God has chosen to reveal himself on the cross. And this is what happens in verse 26. Because he, it's not the winner's that are exalted by the gospel. It's the losers. For consider your calling, brethren, that, not, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, not many rich and powerful. And to say this to the Corinthians, the gospel, Paul is trying to remind them, they were called out of low status because 
Status in Corinth, Corinth is one of the most modern cities there was. Status, or there were, excuse me. Status in Corinth was as important, was as, important as status is today. And he's reminding them that none of them were these people things. They didn't have good names. They didn't have a good education. They didn't have influence. They didn't have, in the Arab world, we'd call it Wasta. In China, we'd call it Guanxi. We'd call it the good old boys network, or you know people, you can pull strings, the powers that be. These people didn't have that. They weren't the winners of society. But God, but verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. God has chosen these things that deny our worldly wisdom, power, and prestige because, he, because these are idols. We all idolize those things, whether we're Christian or not. We know we shouldn't. We still want the nice car. We still want to get the promotion. We still want to be a success. We still want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and win the rat race. Who wants to be a self-made man? I know I do so bad. I don't want, I mean, God wants to help me. He can just get me unfair obstructions out of my way. But if he doesn't, I'll just plow through that mountain. I mean, that's... Mm. That's what we want as American men, and probably American women too, I'd have to guess. We want that. Uh, but Jesus calls that vanity and pride, uh, and it hurts when he does, because it doesn't matter when we stand before God. Let me continue. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us the wisdom of God and the righteousness and sanctification and redemption. As it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's quoting a passage from Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24, because what he's trying to say here is, when you believe the gospel, you're saying the world works in a different way. You're saying nice guys finish last. Uh, you're saying no good deed goes unpunished. You're saying doing the right thing is going to personally ca cause you, per is going to cost you personally. It might even cost you sacrifice. It's saying life's not fair, but God still wants you to do the right thing anyway. Hate that. I mean, this is why we love good fiction with happy endings. I want that. I want the. I. I, I want the enemy. I, I don't want to have to worry about what right or wrong is. Period. But I want the good guy to know it, and I want him to use power and might to make things right. Basically, I want Barabbas, that insurrectionist that Pilate let go, John Wayne. You know, that's what I want. I don't want Jesus. I want John Wayne. And it's hard because I know that about myself. And it upsets me because, how did Luther say it? Jesus Christ knew, in our scripture reading today, Jesus Christ knew what was in man. He did not entrust himself. You know, after he flipped those tables, tables that we probably would have all wanted to be at if we were there, okay? 
tables we would have recreated ourselves had he come in and flipped our tables. But, you know, uh, he, uh, you know he, Jesus did not entrust himself to man because he knew what was in man. Uh, and but for the grace of God, but for the Holy Spirit, Jesus knew that when confronted with God, when confronted with Jesus Christ, when confronted with God, we humans are almost guaranteed infinitely more likely to try to kill him, to silence him, to get him out of our lives than we are to praise him and glorify him. That's just human nature. That's why Jesus didn't... Uh, didn't uh, didn't entrust himself to those people. And, because, and it's, it's humbling to accept the cross and to realize all the ramifications of the cross, how they really, really do affect our life and how we make sense of the world. Uh, because there's always been temptation by, church, by clergy or church leaders or people to do whatever it takes to get people in the pews and keep them in the pews. I would love some more people in these pews. Uh, and the temptation is to not rely upon the work of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified, but instead uh, we can make idols out of our church attendance numbers or the money in the coffers, because it's hard enough to keep those money in the coffers, you know. And that can drive the church's agenda instead of centering the mission on the, of this church or any church on faithful preaching. The Holy Spirit calls and enlightens and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the true faith. Okay? The Holy Spirit, we did not choose him, he chose us. He chose us. You know, the Holy Spirit is the one that does that. But it's hard because we all want to help the word of God. I want to help the word of God. Uh, and it's so tempting for congregations and for pastors and for parishioners and for laity to re rely not on the word of God, not on Christ crucified, but on human factors. And these human factors can be many and varied. Uh, we, could, uh, we could get a strobe light and a smoke machine and some laser lights and get a younger, uh, hipper uh, uh, Becky to lead worship or something, and it would be awesome, you know, or we could... Uh, we could start some really passionate revivalistic preaching up here that just pulls on your emotional strings and, you know, uh, pushes you to make a decision for Christ again. Uh, you know, or we could just, you know, we could, we could tell people to get people in these seats or to get our views up on Facebook. We could just tell people what they want to hear. Uh, you know, uh, we could uh, pre... According to all the latest sociological data, the... As much as we decry how the unchurched in this world, the atheists and unreligious of this nation have totally are redefining everything in defiance to the gospel, it's easy to forget that the Christian church in America doesn't believe the gospel anymore either. Uh, the baby boomer generation completely changed the American church and completely changed what the gospel of Jesus Christ is and completely redefined it. Uh, the dominant gospel preached in the overwhelming majority of churches since the baby boomer generation has been moral, ther moralistic, therapeutic deism. Even good conservative Bible-thumping Christian churches don't preach Christ crucified anymore. Or they do a little bit, but they're overwhelmingly, what the screen time or the press time gets more is 
this other stuff that somehow doesn't conflict with the gospel. Uh, moralistic therapeutic deism is we just assume since the baby boomer generation that there's a God who remains distant from people's lives. That's either a bad thing that makes us feel sorry for ourselves to justify how we behave. This is how I acted in the 80s. Or it's a God who remains distant from people's lives because he doesn't want to intrude with our decisions and our free choices. How many times have you heard a parent go, well, I really want my son to choose to go to your private Christian school, but it's his decision. Or, well, I really want my son to take this ACT test for you, neighbor, but it's his decision. I'm not going to make him. Like, even parents these days assume this is how, this is the right way to act. It's the right way to parent because that's how God parents us, kind of from a distance, doesn't want to interfere with our own agendas and our own personal whatevers. You know, that's, that's the first leg of moral ther moralistic therapeutic deism. The second is people are supposed to be good to each other, whatever that means. We're supposed to be good. Whether that means putting our gender pronouns at the end of our LinkedIn profile or not putting our gender pronouns at the end of our LinkedIn profile. Either way, you're throwing up a flag about what you think is good and you're going to be loved and or hated on somebody depending for it. Now, nobody, my point is nobody agrees what good is, but we all believe that we should be good. Uh, the third assumption of this moralistic therapeutic deism that has taken over since the Wonder Years generation is the ultimate purpose of life is being happy and feeling good about yourself. I mean, how many people in here parented concerned with people with their children's self-esteem? How did that turn out? Now you got preachers like me. I mean, really. Impudent, insolent, self-righteous, self-absorbed. Man, that ain't on me, man. Okay. Uh, but no, I mean, like, really, and it sounds silly, but I'm joking. But, like, my teachers growing up, at least at school and in Christian school, were really, they really wanted us to be happy and feel good about ourselves, even my Sunday school teachers. Okay? And the next thing is, of course, in moralistic therapeutic deism is judge not. There's no absolute truths. If we all say we believe in Jesus, we got to let any, if we, what unites us is Christ and how you do that with your definition of being good and what your moral decisions are, I can't judge that. Because it's all about, just as long as everyone's trying to be good, that's what's going to get you into heaven. Ow. You know, uh, and as long as being, uh, and in this case, being good means finishing the sermon on time. Uh, but no, God allows good people into heaven, whatever that is. And ultimately what happens with this false gospel of moralistic therapeutic deism that's taken over the American church and is now getting exported by missionaries all over the globe, terrifyingly enough, is we have a gospel where God places very little demands on people. Ooh, that scares me. Uh, but yeah, this is the gospel that on a gut level, on a presuppositional level, even though the we believe statement in every website still, still says all the right things. If you listen to the conversation in the pews, if you, listen to the, if, you re, if you look at the books the congregations are reading and the pastors are reading, if you listen to the sermons, this is the gospel getting preached. Uh, and why do we preach that? Because it's how the world works. It's how we believe the world works. Uh, and... It's a really easy gospel to have in our comfortable, convenient, and blessed, and prosperous, and healthy, and wealthy, successful world, but it's not the gospel of the cross. Uh, and to preach against this 
false gospel of moralistic therapeutic deism sounds absolutely insane. It sounds like foolishness. And it sounded like foolishness in Christ's day too. But Martin Luther says it best. Martin Luther never denied the glory and the power of God. Martin Luther never denied all the riches and pleasures forevermore that God will give his children on the other side of heaven. But Martin Luther said that if you don't recognize God on the cross in humility and weakness and shame and brokenness and defeat, you're never going to truly recognize God in his glory and his power either. Because this gospel of moralistic therapeutic deism that leads to so many other false gospels, the gospel of the word of faith, that this God that, doesn't, that remains distant from your life and places very little demands on you, that's not enough. What's next? Some people go as far as the word of faith where God actually wants you to be successful and prosperous in all your lives. Jesus wasn't successful and prosperous in all his lives. He died homeless, penniless, and broken. Okay? Uh, you know, God's blessings do not empower people to achieve Bible promises because in this word of faith idea, what's all of a sudden somehow suffering and adversity comes from Satan and not God. You know, uh, well, God was the author of a lot of adversity and suffering in Jesus' life, and Mary's too. I mean, the angel told that from the jump on Mary. The sword's going to pierce your own soul. You're going to be heartbroken and crushed. You're going to be a wounded, broken person the rest of your life because you're a perfect little angel who you love more than anything. Got you condemned by your community, and then you had to watch him die. You know, and, some, and if this moralistic therapeutic deism isn't checked and we go beyond the word of faith, what's next? Now we have this false gospel of the prosperity gospel. You know, it's not just that, God's, that, that this God who places very little limited demands on us and who remains distant from judging us, wants, he, he, he doesn't just want us to be healthy, wealthy, successful, and prosperous. And he doesn't, and he's not, and he's not only the one that, and Sorry, and he's also not the one causing suffering, because that's Satan. But now, now he actually is giving us the power to cause those things to happen for ourselves if we simply sow financially, if we simply give our money or speak positively. If we just act a certain way, we will achieve the earthly counterfeit salvation of health, wealth, and prosperity through our own decisions and our own actions. This scares me. Again, this is another thing that has taken off in the baby boomer generation, and it feels so good, but it's just a false gospel of glory. It is not Christ crucified. Christ crucified is no good deed goes unpunished. This is how the world really works. No good deed goes unpunished. When you stand up and do the right thing, it's going to cost you. To help somebody else out of their own mess is going to cost you, and they may hurt you too, but you are still expected as a Christian to do it anyway. You, the gospel of Christ crucified is the world really works by people forgiving others, whether they deserve it or not. The, because Christ crucified means 
it's not you doing any of that. If you, act, if you actually succeed in forgiving someone who doesn't deserve it, that spouse, it's not Christ in you. Sorry, it's not you. It is Christ in you. Because this is the true gospel we preach. Christ is crucified so that he, he rose from the dead. And because he died to himself and submitted to God on that cross, when we die to ourselves and we die to our false gospels and we die to our false illusions of desire and power, Christ will live in us and we will be more real and more loving and more Matthew, more Mickey, more, you will be more you than you ever were before. There is so much life, true life, not life without suffering, but true joy in life regardless of your circumstances, when Christ lives and rules and reigns in you. This is the word of the Lord. This is the gospel of Christ crucified we preach. Be warmed and filled. Go and serve the Lord. And if you haven't accepted Jesus Christ and the true gospel, if you need to repent of this false gospel of moral therapeutic deism, Please, the alt if you've been in church your whole life and gotten this whole gospel Christian thing wrong, the altars are open. We will pray for you. Otherwise, go and serve the Lord. You are now entering the mission field as soon as you leave these doors.